Hello, welcome to the June 2023 episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and host of this month's podcast. This month, Yeza Gomez-Mahayas is interviewing the 2022 winner of the JFMS Resident Best Paper Award, Dr. Marike Kynes. And they're going to be talking about monitoring diabetes with freestyle Libras. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. This month, I'm speaking with some of my ICAT care colleagues, Sarah Ellis, Vicky Halls, and our former CEO, Claire Besant, about cat-friendly principles for veterinary professionals. As this is a topic very, very close to our hearts, we've made the full version available to everyone on our podcast channel. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate your time. Could you tell us a little bit about why is it that you wanted to perform the study that you won the award for? In feline medicine, I really like endocrinology and especially like the chronic patients like the diabetes mellitus. And I was always struggling to get proper readings. And then so I thought this would be really cool to write something down about it because then we can actually maybe use it on a bigger scale and people get more information on it. And what I did is I placed a freestyle Libra and I recorded a lot of things like how are the cats reacting? How long does it work? How long does it stay on? Is it even reliable? Do we get numbers that mean anything or is it just completely like a random number generator? And also how do the owners like the use of it? Is it something that they would recommend to other owners with diabetic cats? So I thought I have to do something that is super practical and that other practitioners and owners can read and think, oh, this is useful for me in my practice. It was a brilliant idea. And what are the advantages of continuous blood glucose monitoring devices compared to in-clinic glucose curves or even at home blood glucose curves? Especially in clinic, you never get a proper reading because even if you're super cat friendly, the cat will be stressed out. It won't do his normal routine so you're sticking it in a cage it might not eat as much as it's eating at home because it's scared or it might eat more it's not able to move around you have to get it out of the cage and get a reading so it's not so reliable it's similar at home it's of course probably more reliable than in the clinic but still it's quite a burden for both the owner and the cat and it might be a big thing for them and i think that's what i got back a lot from owners that they say oh this really reduces my stress. This is so much less invasive for me instead of basically poking my cat with a needle every few hours for 12 hours. It makes it just so much more easy for owners. Are there any complications associated with its use? And have you got any tips, any advice on how to avoid them? I think the biggest complication is they stop working, which is annoying. And I think communication is really important. If you inform an owner, look, even if it works for two days, I'm super happy because then at least already I got 48 hours of information and everything extra we got is just a bonus. I think that really helps in our study. I think it was about 25% of cats that actually worked for the full 14 days and the median time it was 10 days. So it's still pretty good. I use glue to make sure it sticks on a bit better, the surgical glue, and that really works well. At the beginning of the study, like half of the cats, I'll, I'll do the dorsal neck and the other half of the cats, I'll do the uh, thoracic wall. And halfway through the study, I basically gave up on the dorsal neck because I find it easier to have a flat surface to put the freestyle on and the dorsal neck is not flat. I'm just doing the lateral thoracic wall and that for me works pretty well. 
And actually what I didn't put in the study because I was already way over the word count, I also looked at if it makes a difference if you cover it up or not. Talk to the owners and I asked, look, do you think that your cat is going to try to get this thing off? So I think in about two thirds of the cats, I did not have it covered with anything. And in one third, I had it with a medical pet shirt. It didn't make a difference whether you have it covered or not. You have to be a bit lucky that your cat will allow for this freestyle lever to be placed on top of the cat. After working on this study, you can predict or identify certain traits in the cats that will help you anticipate whether or not they are going to keep the freestyle longer on. I think the owners really know a lot. They're like, oh, I'm not sure, you know, about this one. If you see them in the cage immediately going to the freestyle, what's this on my Jurassic wall? Then I'm like, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to stay on. And actually, I had one cat, he came home and his sister was like, what's that on you? That's not going to be there. So she took it off within two hours. So that happens as well. And I think one of the other cats was stuck in something and then he ripped the freestyle off. So it's like really silly stuff like that can happen as well. If you look at other complications, I think some cats have a sensitive skin. So in most cats, I really had no or almost no reaction on the glue or on the sticker. And I think it was only out of the 41 cats, three cats that uh, the skin was really red and inflamed and a bit thickened as well. I think I find it hard to predict which cats are going to have that. And there was another study done in cats where they didn't use glue, but they used sutures. And they also had a comparable amount of reactions on the skin. So I think it's probably the sticker itself and not as much the glue. In your study, you compared the clinical accuracy of this freestyle with yes. that of the alpha track. You reported that freestyle over and underestimated the blood glucose readings in some cases. Could you explain in easy terms why those under and overestimations are not clinically relevant and if there are any specific situations in which you should keep them in mind? In humans, and they don't look at the specific values so much. Of course, that's also important, but they look at, will this change my strategy for treatment of this patient. So will this change how I look at the patients if I have the value from one monitoring device compared to the other one? And if you still make the same advice or you still do the same treatment, it doesn't really matter clinically. And if they say, look, if you have this much different, it actually it will be dangerous to the patient because you will make a different clinical decision based on one monitoring device compared to the other one. That's, of course, clinically relevant. So if you say in one case, for example, I will increase the insulin dose. And then if you get another reading from your other device, say, oh, no, we have to actually either decrease the insulin dose or keep the insulin dose the same. Of course, that's clinically relevant. And that's why I looked at that. And then I think in about 95% of the cases, the differences between the two machines were not clinically relevant. So it would not really influence your decision on your insulin dose. So I think that's more important. What I always tell the owner is if you get a really weird measurement, I would always recommend checking it with an alpha track. And perhaps in an unclinic situation where you have an unstable diabetic cat, would you still consider using the freestyle in that situation? Yeah, I do. But for example, if in our clinic, when we have a cat with DKA, we always take a freestyle on because otherwise we have to really take so much blood samples from the ears or from the jugular vein. It's just not very nice. So we always put a freestyle on. But then again, I still think if you get really weird measurements, we just recheck to be sure. And you said the before that the owner's impression on the freestyle liver was positive. Did you get any more feedback on them? 
Yeah, they said it really gave me such more. Also, it was easier to use. And also it gave them a lot of insight. I think that's also a possible drawback because once you put a freestyle on and some owners are really checking every five seconds, basically, and then you get an email every day like, oh, today the glucose was this and that. This can be quite full on if they send you like emails every day. And I think it's also not healthy for owners to just check it so much. They're so hung up on numbers then. And I think it's also really important to communicate with an owner. Look, it's not, we're not treating a number, we're treating the cat around the number. So we also have to look at the clinical situation. That's for me, the most important. I think the drawback that owners gave back to me was the cost of the freestyle. It's not cheap. And of course, then if it falls off after two days or it stops working, it's quite a big investment for them. And also sometimes they were just annoyed that it didn't work for the full 14 days. But I think communication is key. If you really communicate, I know it's a big investment and just count on the fact that we're going to have it two days. And then if we have it more, it's great. When do you consider the management of a diabetic cat as being successful? I think for me, it is successful is everybody is happy. So the cat is happy, but the owner is happy as well. I think we underestimate how hard it is for an owner because you have to stick a needle in it twice a day and you're worrying about hypoglycemia or DKA. And what can I do if I go on holiday? I can't ask a neighbor to do this. And so I think it's really important to not be too strict. If you can get 12 hours, that's great. But if it's going to be 13 hours or 14 hours, I can live with that. And I try to help them. Like there's a special cat sitters that will come out. And if you're on holiday that are really experienced with cats with diabetes, so you don't have to ask your neighbor, we should make it easier on the owner because if the owner gives up and can't do it anymore, then euthanasia is really basically the only other option. How much do you talk about remission? I do talk about it as a bonus. So my goal is to have a happy life for the cat and happy life for the owner and avoid complications. If we manage to get the cat into remission, I'm super happy, but just try to be in it for the long haul. And if we are lucky, then we get the, can get your cat into remission. And of course, I do try to get there by incorporating a weight loss program if necessary, focusing on the food and going for the long acting insulin. So I'm trying to make all the surrounding possibilities as good as we can, but it's not the main goal because I don't want the owner to be disappointed and give up if we can't get to get into remission. And sometimes the best is the enemy of the good. How do you think technology is going to change in this field? Do you think it's going to change a lot? The freestyle is getting smaller and lighter, which will be amazing. It would be even more amazing if we can get like a super tiny insulin pump that we can get onto a cat. That would be super cool. And I think not so much in technology, but in medication, I think there's exciting stuff on the horizon with maybe oral treatment for diabetics or like ultra long acting insulin. I think that's really cool. I can't wait until that's coming out. Yeah, that will be really exciting. And now over to the iCat Care team to talk about cat-friendly principles for veterinary professionals. So the first sort of thing I wanted to talk about, I was going to direct towards Sarah. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about why we felt the need to create the cat-friendly principles. I think the term cat-friendly is something that we've used within a charity for quite a long time. But what does that term really mean, cat-friendly? We knew amongst ourselves, the cat experts within the organisation, knew what that meant. It's our DNA. Uh, it's it's who we are it's what we do but actually having the opportunity to articulate that means that we could share it externally Claire I think we were all quite surprised with how quickly we were able to write the principles 
Why do you think it was an easy project? Often when you say you work for a cat charity, people think you were out there working with unowned cats. They don't really understand the whole process of trying to understand and treat our cats better. So let's articulate that DNA as there is said. We work with vets, we work with breeders, we work with owners, boarding cabaret, all sorts of things like that on different aspects. And that can be quite complex. And there's always been a need to simplify. While we sat down to do it, it was remarkably easy to see what was important. It was almost a relief to put down. I don't know what the rest of you thought, but it felt really good to get that down. Definitely. I remember us thinking that we'd put aside some meeting time. The amount of time that we put aside for it, really, we just didn't need, did we? The essential ideas came very easily, and then we spent a little bit of time simplifying and refining the language. We use a graphic of the feline lifestyle spectrum to really illustrate our respect cats principle. And this graphic was the result of your work, Vicky. And I was wondering if you could just talk us through what it illustrates and why it was a really important concept for the veterinary profession to understand. There was this real perception that the only happy cat is one that lives in a home with somebody to love them. And we realised that may work very well for those cats who are comfortable being pets, but it certainly was not the right outcome for a lot of cats with the particular lifestyles they lead. So... We produced this linear spectrum and we chose two important factors of what made up the individual cats. And that was the sort of lifestyle they were adapted to and their attitude towards people. So we put the wild cat at the far end on the left towards the don't want to be near people, don't put me near people. And then in between were the street cats. In the UK, we would know those as community strays or semi-ferals. We also put a category of cat called the in-betweener. Anybody who's worked in rescue will know that they've seen cats who have been pets before, clearly weren't very happy pets. So we put them on there as well to recognise that they needed something a bit different. And then the pet cat at the other end. So it really starts that conversation. doesn't really matter what you call them. As long as you understand that they're very different to others and they have very specific needs. Yeah, I think it's such a useful diagram, these different types of cats, that when they come into the vet clinic, how we interact with them potentially needs to be different depending on where they're sitting. The other illustration that we use in that section, Sarah, relates to cats' emotions and behavioural responses, especially towards physical interactions. Would you just be able to give us a brief overview on the types of emotions that they experience? especially around visiting the vet clinic? So cats can experience a whole range of emotions, actually. And those emotions may sound in in a first impression similar to ours. But of course, they don't have those levels of cognition. And and it's a really individualized experience. And we're never going to know it fully. But there are these sort of very ancestral mammalian emotions that are there to help animals survive. And those are incredibly useful for us to know, particularly in the veterinary clinic environment, which a cat may find quite threatening or quite stressful. No matter how much we try and minimise that stress, we can't get rid of it all. Some of these cats are in pain, they have injury, they may have disease or illness, they may be uncomfortable. So they are going to experience feelings that are going to be very protective to try and keep them away from further threat or harm. But before I dive into those, I probably just quite like to start with thinking about 
a very engaging emotion or a positive emotion. And that's one called seeking. And that's what cats do when they're motivated to find pleasurable experiences. This is an emotion that we really want to promote in the clinic. And we can do that through play, through food, through gentle social interactions, if it's appropriate for that individual cat. And not only just appropriate for that individual cat, but at that time, that's something else we need to consider. But then we need to think about those more what we call protective emotions, the ones that are designed to really help keep that cat safe. And the first two that spring to mind are fear and anxiety. And they are about avoiding threat and harm. And that's threat that the cat can perceive straight away in front of it. It's really obvious. There's a dog in the waiting room and I'm scared of that dog. Right up to the things that's a bit more like, I'm not quite sure what's making me feel a bit worried. I can't pinpoint exactly what it is, but I am anticipating that something good's not going to happen, that something bad might happen. So that's fear and anxiety. The last one I really wanted to cover is frustration. And frustration occurs when a cat is prevented from doing something that it wants to do. So for example, if it wants to access food and it can't, but also when it wants to access things like escape, less is more when it comes to handling. And by giving those cats the autonomy to move positions, to stop, to rest, to sniff, actually helps keep those frustration levels much lower and keeps an animal in a much safer place because Cats that are frustrated can show responses such as scratching and biting. And the last one is pain. It's one that covers not just a sensorial experience, but also an emotional experience as well. Cats will learn to avoid pain. They will be fearful of anticipating pain. So yeah, that's a quick synopsis, really. We might do a separate podcast on each one of the emotions, maybe. Claire, one of the points of difference for ISFM as a veterinary association has been championing equal consideration to the cat's mental well-being as well as their physical health. As the charity CEO for 28 years, I'd be really interested in hearing your reflections on how this was received. I was looking up one of the quotes in 1960 in the very early days of the charity. It said, there are two recognised diseases of cats. One is cat flu and the other one isn't. And I thought that really just summed up where we were. We talked to those vets who were funded by the charity to specialize in feline medicine. And we started to talk to them about what was important. At the same time, cat behavior was coming to the fore. People were understanding cats much better and taking them seriously. And so we began to think about mental well-being. It's a credit to the vets in those early days. I find another quote that says that FAB, since its inauguration, advised against declawing due to many cases reported of changed personality and psychological upset. So there's nothing true about physical health. It was about how the cats were behaving. And that was the really early days. When you think about where we were, where we had cat flu and nothing else, I think the profession was extremely grateful for a tiny charity. Such a lot of work was done. And those cat people within the profession and around it found a home find a place where they could help develop that and take things on. You look now where we are with cats and how we treat them. It's fantastic. And it isn't just iCat Care and ISFM who are talking about it. And that's the aim of the game. I think that's true, isn't it? A lot of the things that we talked about, especially in those early days, have really become mainstream within the veterinary profession, which is lovely. Vicky, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we see in a lot of pet cats that are relinquished to shelters. 
potentially due to medical conditions that have some degree of a behavioural component. Probably the most common of those is urinary issues that may or may not be lower urinary tract disease. And how do you speak to both cat owners but also shelter personnel about relinquishment under those circumstances where maybe there are situations where the mental well-being issues may not be able to be addressed in their current home or that current environment is causing unintended harm to the cat? That stress cystitis situation was a really big thing when I was working with clients. And we all know that in order to manage that condition, it's a very complex, multifactorial solution to get good management. And there were times in my career where there was something so wrong about the environment, irrespective of how wonderful, conscientious and loving the owner was, that particular cat had very specific needs and those needs were not being met in that home. So that requires a very difficult and sensitive conversation with the owner. And when the owner decides for themselves that's going to be the best option for their pet because they just can't manage those symptoms, then it's important that they understand how well the cat does in the future. Information is so important. And to get that kind of information from somebody giving up their pet, because let's face it, if their pet's had stress cystitis and may have messed around the house, people can censor that information and they can actually hold it back thinking it may act in the detriment of their cat for its future. So they start saying things like, child's allergic or got to move, can't take my cat. That relationship of trust whereby the person understands that whatever they say, it, it will be positive because we need to have information, warts and all, about the cats that are going into care for very specific reasons. The most important thing is building that relationship, finding out what's going wrong for that cat, establishing what that cat needs, and that's what you look for in the future home. The homing centre staff have to do a similar sort of thing to the clinical behaviourist. They have to establish what the issue is and, and try and establish what that cat needs that it doesn't have in its existing home. And the bottom line is get that relationship working and you will get that information. And when we were writing the principles, it really did become apparent quite quickly that we'd written three that were very much focused on the cat, respecting the cat, keeping cats well and doing cats no harm. How would you summarise those three principles? We're lucky that we're all really on the same page at ICAT Care. And I think we do take a very holistic approach to cat welfare. We consider all aspects of the cat. Everybody knows what we mean by the physical health of the cat. But mental well-being is really an umbrella term for the cat's emotional health. And we've talked a bit about some of the emotions that cats can experience. But also it's cognitive health. So we're thinking about the ways it learns as well. Helping that cat to learn through positive reinforcement and not through punishment-based techniques. So no spraying it with water or shouting at it. None of those types of things. And when we think about doing the cat no harm, then we're thinking about not just no physical harm. We're also thinking about no emotional harm. We want to keep that cat in a safe emotional place where it's not feeling threatened or at risk of harm. And also no cognitive harm. So we want to be supporting that animal's cognition as it gets older. We want to be making sure it learns in the most efficient, positive and safe ways. Finally, if we think about our respecting cats, it's going back down to that individualized approach that one, we understand what a cat is when it comes to its welfare, but also that not every cat's the same. They're all individuals. And I think one of the things that we've said for a long time at iCat here is 
cats are not small dogs. They're cats. They're a species in their own right. Every single cat is different. They're all individuals. That's really what we're talking about in our cat-centric sort of welfare approach is considering the physical health, the emotional health, the cognitive health, and not just what that means at the species level, but what that means for every individual. Our principle about being solution-driven for cats encourages people to find evidence-based, pragmatic, sustainable solutions for cats. And sometimes in the veterinary world, there's a sort of a perception that pragmatic is seen as less, that we should be striving for gold standard or a high level of care. Would you be able to explain what we mean by pragmatic when we use it and how being pragmatic can really advance feline welfare? I thought we'd look up gold standard and I'd look up pragmatic just to be sure. Gold standard, a thing of superior quality, which serves as a point of reference against which other things of its type may be compared. Bear that in mind. Pragmatic meaning sensible and realistic based on practical things, which is very straightforward. So then I thought back to those very early days of the charity when it was flu or not cat flu. And I thought just about anything was gold standard at that point because we knew absolutely nothing. And what was pragmatism? It was treating a cat as a small dog because that's all we knew. So we've come quite a long way from that. You're not just treating a cat on a consult table. You're working with the owners. You've got owners who are very good at dealing with their cats. You're handling them and owners who can't do anything. People who can pay, people who can't pay, all sorts of things. To treat a cat is just so much more complex than that. And we've used the word pragmatic, obviously, because for cats, the reality of the situation is what treatments we can give pet cats, but can they be given? And if you look in all those different countries where people are striving to do the best for cats, they don't necessarily have the treatments available that may be available in other countries. People try to do the best they can in that situation. Our founder, John Judd, once said, and I, this was such a nice quote, in our pursuit of knowledge, we can lose sight of compassion. We must not get caught up in the excitement of achievement to the exclusion of all else, for this will defeat our aims. If we rephrased gold standard to gold standard solution for that cat, Bearing in mind all our principles, it may not be the perfect medical solution, but the gold standard is what can actually be fulfilled. So I think striving for knowledge and gold standard, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we think of it as a gold standard solution for that animal, that's actually being pragmatic at the same time. Thank you, Claire. That's a brilliant answer. And I think it really sums up the direction for the veterinary profession that we need to be moving in. Vicky, your job requires a huge amount of communication and collaboration. And I wondered if you could share with us why you think, especially in that relationship between the veterinary sector and people that work within four unowned cats, the collaboration and the communication can be challenging on both sides. That the whole unowned cat world is all about cat population management. A lot of people who work in the unowned cat sector, bear in mind that a majority of them are actually volunteers from all over the world. They work incredibly hard and they don't stop to think, I need to build up a relationship with this veterinary practice because they are our collaborators and we need to work in partnership to make this work well. So it, it turns into something quite transactional. And I don't think that's terribly satisfying for the vets either because it's quite often complex and challenging work. It's often low cost with regard to revenue. And so often, 
the neutering will be done, the cats will go out and they'll think, oh, and that'll be the end of the relationship between the two parties. The other thing is when they're dealing with medical cases in homing centres, there's that need to know attitude. And this is just what I've acquired through conversations with various people. And they say, we're not quite sure because we didn't really understand what the vet said. So there's that breakdown in communication. There's a sense that they've got no common ground. The relationship is just transactional. Whereas there's a huge movement now within the unowned cat sector to become more professional. They want to be seen as a profession, as a career pathway. And this is really exciting. And they're starting to lift their heads up and put their heads over the parapet and say, I think we need to collaborate. I think we need to evolve. I think we need to improve things. I think if that can be achieved and if they're just explicit with each other and make it clear what their needs are, they can build that working relationship. At the moment, I think that's present in pockets around the world, but not universally. Neither party can do their job without that communication and that collaboration element if we want to have the right outcome for these cats. Just to finish up our session, I was wondering if each of you would be able to share what you think is the biggest evolution for cats that you have seen over your career. Sarah, I was going to turn to you first. When I did start my PhD, which was the first time then I was studying just cats. I was searching for scientific papers and research done on behavior and welfare or any aspects of the cat-human relationship when it was like digging for gold. When you found one, it was so exciting. I could mentally file those papers. I could tell you they were in my brain, the date, the names of the author, what they were about, and I could reel them off. And then I would wait weeks, if not months, before another one came. And that was the state of behavioural cognition, welfare research for cats at that time. And I think now they're coming in thick and fast, not just every week, but sometimes every day. Today alone, there's three I've seen that I've thought, oh, I need to read all of those. So for me, that evolution, that development of global interest in this topic of behaviour and welfare is just for me so fantastic. Thank you, Sarah. The volume of papers has been increasing year on year. Claire, what have you noticed? What's the biggest evolution you've seen? I've been noticing what the charity did even before I joined it, probably 30 to 35 years ago. And it was a time when suddenly all these diseases were suddenly coming to the fore. So we had FIV, FSE, FELV, diabetes, everything was new. And so there was just volumes of stuff coming out on the physical health of cats. And that was a really exciting time. And I think that led to the development of ISFM and the journal Feline Medicine Surgery as well, because there was so much to say, because there was very little before that. The charity was probably fairly unique in the beginning to even be thinking about those things then at the same time when we couldn't treat anything. We understood that we had to think about the cat itself and how we did that. So to see that happening is just absolutely fantastic. We're talking about health, we're talking about well-being, we're bringing it all together. And to see that come together is just absolutely fantastic. And to be involved with the people who are doing that. Things like FIP being first recognised all the way through to these recent years where we are at the stage where we can say we can treat this disease that was previously untreatable. It's a, it's a really fascinating evolutionary arc to have observed. 
how about you, Vicky? What's the biggest evolution that you've noticed? Different countries are starting to talk globally about issues. We're starting to recognize global issues. And there's because of the way we've become such a small planet now, I, I think that technology that has enabled this to become a much smaller world has enabled that knowledge as a consequence to spread. So for my lifetime over the past sort of 60 odd years, the fact that we can communicate and talk and share across the globe. I think that's a fantastic point, Vicky. And some of that was behind the decision making when we converted JFMS into an open access journal this year is that we've gone from having a very informal journal back in the fab days, a newsletter as it were, and then moving towards a peer-reviewed journal with JFMS. And now it's an open access journal that's fully available to anyone virtually. And that ease of access just isn't something we would have even realized it was an option 20 years ago. When I was thinking about how I was going to answer this question, I was reflecting on my area of research interest, which is aging cats and osteoarthritis. And some of the very early papers around radiographic lesions of osteoarthritis were just publishing while I was at vet school. And we were starting to recognize that yes, cats did have osteoarthritis, but I don't think we really recognized the significance because we just didn't have the skills and the tools to truly understand chronic pain. And to me, pain assessment, both acute and chronic, our tools to be able to do that, but also our drugs to be able to treat it, have just increased exponentially over the last 10 years or so, especially. And some of that also has that technology element that a lot of these tools that we use, we can access through our smartphones, um, through computer algorithms. And I think all of that is, is really having a massive impact on that physical health element of pain. But as Sarah alluded to earlier, there's the emotional element of chronic pain, especially as well. And I think that's having a massive advancement in feline welfare. If you're an ISFM member, don't forget you can access all the other ISFM member benefits, including our 2020, 2021 and 2022 Congress recordings. The 2023 Congress recordings will also be going live in July. We also have monthly webinars and our clinical club. There's the discussion forum and much, much more. And that's all available through portal.icatcare.org. If you're looking for more CPD in July, we have further open access webinars. Uh, the first one is from IDEX, Management of Feline Chronic Enteropathies. And the second one is from BOVA, Feline Sleepy, Anxiolysis and Sedation Tips. So do keep an eye on the ISFM social media channels for more details on those. Don't forget, JFMS is now an open access journal. So if you do wish to read JFMS's cat-friendly principles for veterinary professionals, the link is available in the show notes. We'll be back again next month. If you don't want to miss it, then do make sure you sign up to Chattering with ICFM on your preferred podcast channel.